Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45. Joined not with uh, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. She is not doing well today. So instead, not as, a, not, not as a consolation prize, but, you know, in your own rights and as awesome folks, we have a Peter Kim and Emma Bose from the Museum of Food and Drink. Yo, so hey, by the way, I need to provide a visual for what we just saw. When, when Dave does that intro thing... He has like sweat beating on his forehead, and do you know that scene in Total Recall when Arnold Schwarzenegger goes out on Mars and his eyes start like bugging out? I was gonna hope I, g- I got to be Quato. I'm just get to be Arnold Schwarzenegger with his eyes bugging out. I mean, Quato yeah. is the guy to be. I'm like in buried in someone else's chest. I thought, going, no, no, no. This is this is more like your your eyes are bugging out like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Total Recall. But that's the image that I saw when you were doing that opening thing. Do you know I've used that reference? Uh, like countless dozens of times teaching uh, sous vide and vacuum work. Like the, whenever like I try to talk about what happens to a piece of meat when you put it in a vacuum machine and it's warm, for instance, close to body temperature, even room temperature, I always try to bring up uh, the total recall where Schwarzenegger's eyes are pu- puffing out. But can, do, do you remember the noises he was making? He's going back and forth. It's like halfway between a, a person and a pig. And it sounds very unlike the... Uh, the Schwarzenegger that we all know and love. By the way, I had a weird Schwarzenegger dream like two nights ago. I was hanging out with him and I was totally surprised that he, in the dream, also uses all of his own catchphrases like at random, just at random <laughs> times. He would just say, get to the chopper, like randomly. So weird. I bet you, like, I wonder in the real life whether he does that or not. I think my favorite source of uh, Schwarzenegger quotes is from Kindergarten Cop. Oh, not a tumor? Yeah, not a tumor. Uh, I can't remember what else there is. So, but, uh, well, I mean, that's the, the best one, not yeah. a tumor. Who is your daddy? What does he do? Yeah. That's not a good one. Uh, who is your daddy? What does he do? All right. Um, joined in the engineering booth by Jack Inslee. And why, why, what's your last name? It's Wyatt Burns. Wyatt Burns. No, like, whenever I hear Burns, I think Mr. Burns. You get that a lot? You don't look like him. I don't know why I would think of that. Uh, Emma, Emma can do a great Mr. Burns impression, actually. Oh, yeah. uh, I wouldn't say the whole impression, more just the kind of uh, shudder. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I see that. <laughs> yeah. I see that. Uh, all right, so why don't we... Uh, hey, I've got a, a caller right out the gate. Uh, all right, caller right out the gate. You're on the air. Hey, what's up? How are you, Dave? Doing all right. Uh, I got a question about um, Bactel Firm for salami curing. Sure. Um, I'm using, uh, I think, FRM... I started with uh, Polstein's book. I think he recommends FRM 52. I don't recall off the top of my head, but basically, as you, I'm sure, already know, it it calls for, uh, like, a 12-or-so-hour incubation period. Uh, Right now, what I'm doing is I actually have a a light bulb on a timer that I close in my oven door with all the salumis that goes on like X amount of minutes per hour. I keep between 80 and 100. But my question is, um, is there any reason I can't um, put it in a water bath sealed up to do that? Or does it need to kind of have that drying out as well? Well, it's not just a drying out. Is that, uh, huh, 
I've never had anyone ask me that before. Uh, I mean, you're trying to... You want the pH to drop. Now, the, lacto, the lactic acid bacteria are anaerobic, so you shouldn't need the oxygen. Maybe the thing is to stop the ox- Maybe the thing is to stop the exterior uh, bacteria that are not um, that are aerobic from uh, growing during the initial period of drying out. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I was worried about the moist environment inside the bag somehow being a safety issue, but I don't know how, if it would be that much different than being inside the dry oven or hanging in a, in a warm well, box, like yeah. a proofing box or something. You know? Well, I mean, remember, it's it's more it's it's inside the bag. is not only is it uh, you know not drying it out. Remember, your humidity at the beginning of this stuff is super high anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, so at, at the beginning. Yeah. You know, uh, if especially if you're doing it like in a in a converted fridge thing, your humidities are. I mean, it's been it's been years since I've looked up the numbers, but your humidities are in the 90s uh, when you're doing your initial uh, fermentation. But if you put it in a bag, you've shifted it from the exterior being uh, uh, an aerobic environment to an anaerobic environment, and I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you might be putting yourself. Uh, at risk for various things that way, but uh, I mean, I could suspend it over the water on a rack. Oh, that and would, at least, and then cover it with a towel, right? I mean, that would definitely work. But you'd be putting yourself then in a hundred percent humidity environment. Now, whether or not that's a problem or not, I don't know. I mean, like, it, look, I'll tell you what, Peter. Next week, we're going out to hang out in Madison. That's right. Aren't we? Yeah, gonna, next week. Are, are we going to meet with the uh, curing folks in Madison when we're out there? The guys. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I'll ask them. How about I ask them when I see them? You know, maybe they have some experience. I mean, obviously, I've never heard of I – mean, uh, look, obviously, there are some lactic acid uh, things that take place entirely aerobically underwater. I eat yeah. almost every pickle and every sauerkraut. Um, yeah. Why not do – why not do it in a bag uh, for sausages? I frankly don't, I mean, I don't. I don't know. What I'm doing is working, but I just figured it's as a matter of convenience and absolutely stable temperature for a very specific amount of time. I just figured, you know, I just got the circular. I'm trying to use it for every stinking thing I can think of, as you as you know how that goes. Yeah, I mean, look, um, if you bag it, you're definitely going to get blow off in that time because, uh, you know, and that's another interesting uh, point is that, uh, but of course, you're putting you're putting a, a, a culture in it, so I don't know. I mean, I've had very, very very unpleasant fermentations take place in vacuum bags uh you know uh in the mid to in the low 50s celsius overnight like hyper unpleasant uh smells uh in in uh specifically in uh pork so you know we used to do uh whole pork shoulders in fat and i remember because fat uh, fat, you know, is not obviously – it's thicker than water, so it doesn't circulate as well. It's also not as good of a, a, a conductor – you know, it doesn't have as high a specific heat, so it doesn't, you know, put as much energy out. So if you circulate fat, you have to be really super careful that you get really good circulation all the way around. And I had some stagnant points in my uh, fat bath that I had these pork shoulders in. And not only that, the pork shoulders were uh, touching each other in a couple places. And so it was total, uh, not only a dead spot, but you had something that was roughly the size of a Chevy engine that, you know, was trying to get warm. And then, you know, couple that with the fact that even when it was regulating temperature right, it was only at 57, which is just a, a mere, like, like six degrees above or seven degrees above, like, kind of growth 
for this. And so yeah. I had a 10 degree temperature delta over the over the, you know, the span of this bath. And the next day I walked in, it was like someone had taken like a, like a really bad blue cheese and just, you know, put it into a pressure washer and sprayed the whole room with it. I mean, it stank <laughs> to high heaven. And while I love the smell of blue cheese, with the rare exception of some uh, of a chi- yeah, of a Chinese ham that I had once and the uh, and I think the really good like uh, Colonel Newsom's hams and blue cheese is not usually a note you're shooting for in meat. And when it when it when it commingles with like that slight kind of putrescence that you get out of some fermentations. Like unless you're eating Scandinavian fish, and I'm talking to you, Sir Stroming, not to the hockerel, which we all know did not smell that rotten from last week. Uh, I think you can – I mean I know for a fact that unpleasant things happen in that. But if you're using a starter culture, I don't know. I'd have to just talk to some some uh, people who have more than theoretical ideas about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I'd love it if you could get to, get to the bottom of that for me. That would be awesome. Sure. No problem. And also, uh, that email about the uh, turkey uh, porchettas from me, too. So I hope you guys get the chance to address that today. That would be sweet. Did that just come in? Because Nastasha is, like I say, she's not she's not here. So I didn't get – there's apparently I had three questions but from uh, this past couple of days, but I didn't get it. You want to just tell me the question now? Well, I was already told there's only one question for caller. I will tell you anyway. All right. um, uh, Kenji, you know Kenji, he had a – uh, experiment he did where he did, and, and I did this with a chicken, not with a turkey, and I'll make it brief. Basically, break it down, brine the breasts, pound them out, grind all the dark meat into sausage, roll it up into a perfect torpedo, you know, with saran wrap, um, and then uh, wrap it in the skin, sous vide it, or whatever, and then um, and then deep fry the whole thing, and then serve slices of it, which sounds amazing. Right? I, I used to do uh, that however, like all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my question is that since I'm going to be serving it at a different home other than I'm preparing it in, is it going to suck if I fry it at my house and then try to rewarm it? I'm not too sure about the the properties of skin that's been low temp and then fried, if it's going to hold a crisp like the the Korean wings do. No, uh, no, absolutely it will not. It will okay, not. so it's going to suck. Uh, no, it's not going to suck. It's just not going to be like that. I mean, first of all, but usually when I do it, I couldn't, can't remember exactly what you do. Usually I put the dark meat around the outside because it's the most – then you don't even need to brine the, the, the white. Usually, I mean, I do the opposite. Look, when you think about it, right, te- from a technical standpoint, you want the dark meat to cook to a higher temperature than the white meat, right? I mean, yep. that's just fact, yep. by about two degrees. So usually what I'll do is I'll pound out the dark. I can't remember which way you said it, and then I'll put the white on the inside. I, look, I used this one of my, it's my standard demo. Nils and I used to do like a, a, a what's it called, a turducken this way, right, the way that you're describing with the skin on the outside. But one of my standard demos was to bone out a whole chicken, put the breast in the center, pound out the dark meat, uh, wrap it in the skin with meat glue, roll it into – and by the way, there's a skill and an art to uh, doing torchons with plastic wrap. And you know, I learned it from Nils Norin, and I'm not saying that like it's a good way to learn, but cooking issues in the low-temp primer, cookingissues.com, which we're not updating anymore but still exists, has a like a, like a good visual thing on how to wrap a nice uh, stiff torchon, which, you, which should, uh, by the way, sink. That's how you know you've done it right. If the sucker floats yeah, way up at the top. I'm going to have to check that out because mine are a little sketchy. I keep going back and forth between the freezer just to keep 
everything where it's supposed to be, you know? Yeah, if you use the... Look, Nils Norin will make any, any, anything into a tube. I've seen him make the least tube-like things into tubes. And uh, so, you know, I learned his technique, and it's really good. And then Hervé, also from the French culinary, his magical secret sauce was he would... Um, after you put the normally what would be the last wrap of plastic around the torchon, he would do one more thin layer of plastic and get this with a couple of butter knives rolled into it. And the butter knives just sink the torsion straight to the bottom of, of the uh, circulator, which is a sweet trick, right? Oh. All right. Sweet trick. Uh, now, but back to your, your other thing. Um, super crispy skin either happens from long frying, right? Or, uh, you know, like double frying typically in, a, in, a, in the Korean thing, usually in the presence of uh, extra starchy crap that can – because it's all the water management. Like crispy skin is all about managing the water, right? So yeah. in, in some of the – in like the in what I think is like the super awesome Korean drumstick technique because really I could give uh, rats behind about the rest of the rest of it. Like for me, like that – like old style, like whatever you want to call it, Kyoshan style, Bonchan style, whatever you want to call it. You know, Peter, what do you like to call it? Which style do you – you, you don't care. He's what? Speak. Korean fried chicken. Right, what do you call it? But, I mean, uh, but the, the yeah. one, the one that, for, the one that forms like a maraca with the meat, like that's about like setting the skin at the right temperature. The meat kind of drifts away from the skin, which maintains this thing, and then you have awesome water balance. So, and then they put it with that kind of uh, sugary crap that also helps it keep kind of crunchy because it's like it's basically like you know a candied shell of awesomeness. I think that stuff's fantastic, but in a low temperature environment where you've meat glued the skin to it and you're getting all of your texture off the final fry it's never going to be that crispy unless you batter it and deep fry it now if you batter it and deep fry it then you might have some uh, good luck but you're still you're then you're relying on the fact that you have a thick crust to deal with the moisture management problem because when you're doing low temp you're never overcooking the meat because you're never overcooking the meat you're always having something moist in contact with the skin and so it never lasts that long however like these torchons can be really good even as a cold prep for a buffet and the skin looks nice because you seared it once and I, I did that once for or, uh, you know, my wife had to throw a baby shower for someone, and I wasn't allowed to be there because I'm a dude. And apparently, like some people, like they don't let dudes at their baby shower. I wouldn't complain if you ever been to a baby shower. You're not missing out. Uh, all right, good. Well, uh, so anyway, so like she didn't want to do much cooking, and I wasn't allowed to be there to finish stuff off. So I did a bunch of cold prep with uh, chicken and turkey, which is fantastic because no one's used to having a cold prep that doesn't suck. Oh, you're right. I'll agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the. Uh, one way I do a roast chicken at home is I sort of dry out the chicken over a few different days, for over three days, so it gets this, like, mummy-like appearance. Yeah, actually. And then when it's super dry, it looks almost desiccated, then I roast it, and you get a super crispy skin out of it. Right, and that's a good point. Like, when I do low temperature on turkey for Thanksgiving, I'll do the low temperature, and then I'll just leave it uncovered in the in the fridge for a while to flash off. And if you pull it out of the torchon when it's hot, you'll get more flash off on the skin, and you're liable to get crispier skin anyway. But I don't think you're ever going to make it to Korean fried chicken land with that. Well, no, I was just using that as an example. But, I mean, I could always just low temp it and then refrigerate it and then finish it in, like, a 500-degree oven. Like, right before, I mean, I'm sure I could get some oven space. They have, like, three ovens at that Oh, that's, a, that's always a good call. That's always a good call because then you're doing what I always call uh, low-temperature cooking for insurance purposes, meaning the sucker's cooked through, so you don't need to worry about it. It's going to get kind of mildly warm in the middle, so nothing really matters. And then you cook it like you were going to normally cook it in somebody's crappy oven, but you no longer have to sweat it because the inside's already cooked. I mean, that's a genius move. That's, like, then you, then you don't have to, like, 
ask them for anything fancy. You don't have to fry. You don't have to look like you're high maintenance. You just throw it in their oven and it comes out. They're like, why can't I cook like this? And it's because, well, because you're not thinking straight. That's why you can't cook like this. And then I'll, I'll be the hero of Thanksgiving. <laughs> exactly. Hero of Thanksgiving. That's what I like to hear. Dave, I love the fact that on the one hand, you are no longer a high maintenance guest. On the other hand, you're telling them the host of your <laughs> the host of, they're not thinking straight. So yeah, well, no, that's I only if they know. ask. It's only if they ask. A gallon of oil, everybody out of the kitchen. Yeah, now, you know what? The thing is also like if you're bringing something kind of like that major to the, to the event, like they're seeding, like they're seeding anything to you. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like, oh, make some sides, and then you're gonna have like the big old turkey thing. It's like, look, you get to say basically whatever you want, but it still is mega cool to walk in there and not mess with the fact that they are still rushing around to get their mashed potatoes done. Walk into the kitchen for about twenty five seconds, throw the thing in, and come back like like thirty five minutes later and pull out something delicious. They're like, oh man, you don't even have to talk yeah. to them about it. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. you, boom, you drop the mic. Did I tell you about that business idea I had? Check this out. I'm never going to do this. So someone do this. Here's what I want to do. Someone do this. I want to make disposable, like really like, like inexpensive, recyclable maybe, disposable microphone things with just a simple accelerometer in it. You just keep them in your pocket. And they have a little speaker in them, right? And then when you do something, you just you pull it out of your pocket. No one knows it's there. You drop it, and it goes, and you walk away from it. And you you buy like a pack of five of these, like drop the mics, and then you know you just always have one with you for when it's time to drop the mic and walk away. I think I hear your new Kickstarter, dude. I know, but someone you know, look, it's like before. It's like, look, I've just handed someone like a like a small like a, a wheelbarrow full of money. Just like send us something. That's all I'm saying. Here's the thing, Dave. In order to properly pitch the idea, you need to have the mic to drop at the end of your pitch. Well, that's what I'm saying. Someone uh, who has the someone has the time to go make someone who has the time to go make the mic. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like they should just make it, and I'm just saying, send us something. That's all. I, you know, I'm a generous dude. I'm not. I don't have time to. to it's not. It's not in my. It's not in my. Uh, you know, the range of things that we work on, Booker and Dax. So I can't really devote the time to it that it deserves, that it merits. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, good luck with the turkey. Yo, thanks for your help, guys. All right, cool. I got uh, another caller. Uh, patiently waiting. Sweet caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Doing all right. What's up? Um, I work at a manufacturing company, and recently they tasked me with uh, designing, like, a full-service kitchen for all the guys that work on our shop floor. Sweet. And, um, and the owner of the company, um, I presented my initial layout to him, and he thought it was great. Um, I'm actually making use of some sous vide machines and stuff. And, uh, but he wants me to uh, reuse some old equipment that we have lying around, which makes complete sense. Um, he's got like two or three three, com- uh, three compartment sinks that he wants to uh, use for sous vide. Right. Um, I, I told him just to use polycarbonate bins because I know they're cheap and it's versatile. You can stow them and stuff. I was just curious how would you like how would you mount the controller to a three comp sink and have like one per compartment and plus you got like like water baths that are sharing you know walls in the sink and stuff like transmitting heat between different temperature baths. Um, like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, his thought is that you can actually drain the sink when you're done with your sous vide and you're not dumping out a big bin of water and all that. Sure. Well, I mean, like, okay, so, um, Gerard, uh, Philip Preston from PolyScience built one, uh, built something very much like that for, uh, Gerard Bertillon from Cuisine Solutions and, and he loves it, right? So, you know, it's obviously feasible. The thing is, you're going to be dealing typically with a sink, you're going to be dealing with a much larger, uh, water 
um, water situation than you would be with a with a regular circulator, which tops out at around so a regular thousand watt heater in a circulator tops out at around 28 liters worth of water. So you need to measure kind of how much your your big your sink is and, and kind of figure from there how much power you're going to need. Secondly, um, it a lot depends on how you're going to mount the heating head. So some people have done it uh, where they mount they like mount a standard circulator into a uh, into a sink. And if you're going to do that, what you have to be careful of is that you get full circulation from top to bottom, right? So a lot of mm-hmm. people just worry about you know is the pump above the water and is the heater above the water? But that is you know, because think about it this way. This, the pump typically circulates straight out, and cold, colder water tends to sink. So if you have um, something that's circulating over at the top, you can have stagnation at the bottom, and all the cooler water is floating to the bottom, so you're never heating all the way down to the bottom of your tank, especially if you have product in there. So typically, if you're going to have something, if you're going to do something like, let's say, weld, what kind of shop? Do you guys, metal, plastic, what do you Yeah, do? we do we do everything. We do metal, wood, plastic, okay. I mean, like a ton of different things. So, so you're good to go. So what you what I would do is like ha- like weld like a bracket so that you could put the circulator pump in the sink if you need to. This is the simplest way. You can go much more complicated and really internal so you can mount a controller and a circulator and you could like weld a pump into it so that you never have to have something on the outside. It depends on how much you want to put into it. But, um, you know, I have seen people weld brackets and then have the circulator fit in. That way, if there's a problem, you're not ripping a controller that's built in out of the sink. It's less work you have to do. It's a little more not as built in, so it's a little bit bigger of the pain in the butt, but it's also easier to sanitize because you can remove all the units. You don't have to worry about a flow-through pump. Now, back to the sink itself, usually in a – depends on what kind of three-compartment sink that you have, but most of the time it's not like an actual partition. In other words, just a piece of metal. Typically, uh, you know, you'll have – is it or is it like three uh, things that are sunk into it and you have like a good like half, three-quarters of an inch uh, lip in between the compartments? Uh, I don't think there's an air gap. I think it's just metal and then it's just a metal divider or something. Right. Um, I don't think it's actually like a, like a U-shape or anything. Right. Well, then you could always just make, if you want, uh, like an insulated metal kind of saddle that you can mount the two circulators to. That'll slip over the panel, and that'll provide enough insulation to stop too much crosstalk between the two and provide an easy way to drop two circulators into the sink without modifying the sink. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like a... Almost nice, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you know that's going to be maybe the easiest way because it doesn't require any kind of actual modification of the sink unit itself. It can stay where it is, and like everything else can be done in the shop. What I would recommend is putting some spray insulation on the inside under the other parts of the sink so that you're not losing too much through the bottom of the cabinet. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And then for evaporation, just do some custom lids with a cutout for the controller. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't use those ping pong balls. I think they're a pain in the butt. I've never met anyone who's been like, you know what? I'm really glad I used those ping pong balls. <laughs> Uh, you yeah. know, I think th- like those, like uh, I think were sold as a bill of goods to chefs as something that was good. I think that's really awesome when you're doing stuff that like is really nasty with really nasty volatiles. Like if you're electroplating or something, yeah. fantastic. But for cooking, nah. Like a like a you know just like a modified like Lexan uh, lid, and you know depending on how fancy you want to go. Uh, you can, you know, like I've seen people make little like hinged portions of it so you could go in and get portion by portion, uh, you know. But the nice thing about sinks is you can drain some water and then you can just pitch ice into it and, and, uh, and, and drop the temp down or you can, uh, you know, what you should typically do is, uh, is drain the water, let it sit for a couple of minutes, add uh, regular room temperature tap water to it, let it sit for a couple of minutes and then ice it down. But you can do all of that under circulation, which makes it a lot more uh, – 
efficient. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm actually really stoked about it, so that's, that's really good, uh, helpful information. I just found out, too, that we have, like, an endless supply of liquid nitrogen, so I'm going to check with our supplier, make sure it's food grid, and then go to town with that, too. Yeah, you know, most of it, it like, uh, most of the people who supply it supply it also to kind of medical places, so the product itself is all good. It's a question of the filling apparatus and the tank they put it into is usually what the, what the dealio is, but most of the time you're actually okay because it'd be harder for them to you know, give you something that's ruined than not. In most cases, not always. Always check with them. They they don't usually call it food grade. They call it medical grade. Okay. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much. Super. Uh, let us know how it All works. Right. All right. So I, I have another call. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll, we'll take the we'll, caller. You are on the air. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Going all right. Hey, um, I'm looking to try and uh, make the, the duck prosciutto in Roman's book. Sure. And I think it calls for, you know, hanging it somewhere between 50 and 60. Uh, where the heck would you do that in New York apartment? The fridge is going to be way too cold. I feel like the rest of my apartment's way too hot. Um, well, can, mm-hmm. I, can I try it either way, or what, what would you suggest? Trying? What do you have access to? Sorry? What do you have access to equipment-wise? Um, a circulator. Um, uh, I think that's kind of the main thing, but yeah, just in terms of the hanging, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well, I don't actually, frankly, know how uh, how um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know how sensitive uh, it's going to be to yeah, uh, right. the temperature. Like, so you know, a lot of times, what'll happen when you're doing when you're hanging something is that, or when you're f- fermenting or curing or any anything you're doing, right? is that uh, a number of things are going on. You're drying the product out. In some cases, there's bacterial fermentation going on, but there's also a lot of enzymatic activity that's going on. And in, in any of those situations, you're going to be affected by both the heat and the humidity. And it can affect not only the length of time, but also the flavor that's going to come out of it, which is why American country hams, where we're talking about a lot of enzymatic activity in the meat along with the drying, you, the higher temperature products are going to have a kind of a different, you know, more robust kind of more American uh, flavor. Now, uh, so point is you'll probably be able to get it done at, at a lower temperature, but it might not be the same. Also, you won't uh, – you know, what humidity does he recommend? Do you know? Sorry? What humidity does he recommend? Do you, do you, do you, I forget. What he- I, I don't remember, and I'm not sure if, if it's even noted, to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on how – you know, I mean – I feel you probably don't have the space to get a wine cooler and use it for uh, and use it for curing meats, although it works quite well. Like a, like one of those little vino temp kind of things, or yeah, like you know one of the ones that ho- like I, I have one that holds I think like I don't know like fifteen sixteen bottles, and I use it like I use it I never have that much actually maybe it's two cases I don't know I never have that much wine in my house because I don't collect like expensive wines but I also use it to store my cheeses when they come in because I don't like to refrigerate my cheeses uh, and I'll use it for uh, meats that I'm you know holding um, and you so you could use something like that you might be able to literally just uh, like throw some ice in the bottom how long do you have to do it Sorry? how long do you have to keep it uh, I think they say about a week or so, maybe yeah. two, maybe two. I mean, I you, you could build something. Depends also on how handy you are. Like you could build easily build like with a Peltier, like a thermoelectric, because you don't need to move that much energy out, right? So you could probably right. pretty easily build something that would hold the right temperature inside of like a cooler 
or even something you made out of styro. It's just a question of like where you would keep it. Like, would you like hide it in a closet somewhere? But it, it would be exactly. You know, it wouldn't be that difficult for it wouldn't be that difficult for you to to do. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way that doesn't shaft. I mean, you could easily do it if you shaft your fridge, but then you can't keep anything else. That's not really a valid solution. Uh, I wonder if there is any commercial enterprise that you could sort of tip them, tip money their way to be able to use a little corner of their like walk-in or something. They, the problem is, is you can't put a, something that they don't. Nah, the, the laws are all oh, yeah. are all nutty. Got a tweet in from Elliot Papineau says a dorm fridge with temp humidity control might be a good way to go. Yeah, if you have the space for it, like that's a great way to go, uh, Elliot. The like you know you get one of those little fridges. It's not going to hold that much. But then from AuburnInstruments.com, you can get really cheap kind of humidity and temperature control stuff and just kind of keep it bup, bup, bup. You know, you'd be putting it in the cooling phase rather than the warming phase. So you wouldn't have a heater on it. You'd have a, a cooler on it. Then if you, you know, were really slick, like if you wanted to raise the temperature above ambient later, you could throw a heater into it as well. But, like, yeah, that would, that, I mean, that would clearly work if you have the space for it. Like the thing is dedicating a closet to it. The, you know, uh, it's not going to be going on that often. So you might be able to get away with it in a closet. The closet's not going to get too hot. I mean, I know that for a fact with the wine cooler because I've kept a wine cooler in a closet for, you know, over a decade and it, it worked fine. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think the question just comes down to how much am I going to be doing this? Am I going to get really into it where there's something that I'm going to, you know, constantly be doing? And then it's like, oh, yeah, just buy the fridge. That's no problem. But, yeah, I mean, that's a good point that you could store cheeses and, and other stuff in it to um, that might kind of make it worth it. Also, fall's coming on. So what I would do is do it like fairly close to a place. Maybe you can crack a window. If you're anything like most people in New York apartments, it gets hot as heck because they have those radiators and the radiators can't be adjusted. And so like you have to open your windows in the middle of the winter. Are you like that? That's exactly the problem, yeah. Yeah. So the good news about that is you can find a place in your place that's cold enough by putting it close enough to a window, like, you know, in a box with some screen over it really cheaply and figure out kind of whether you like it or not or whether this is something you're going to do. And then before it gets, like, really hot again, then you can invest in a, uh, in a uh, you know, in, in a more permanent, like, dorm fridge rig. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a good idea. Yeah, always good to test the waters, but or go the other way. The other way, the other way, and I've done this many times is just jump right the heck in, spend all the cash, and you're like, well, I got to do it now because I I devoted all this time and energy to it. I got I got to do it now. That's how I learned to play bass guitar. Like, you know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I done spent the money. Of course, that was back when I couldn't afford to like lose that kind of money. So it was like you know. You know, it's like yeah, it has to be a sufficient gamble, kind of thing. Yeah, you have to make a big enough investment in time and or uh, and or money that it's it, it's a personal failure and embarrassment if you don't actually see it through. You know. So Dave's advice is to take a high interest loan or pawn off some very valuable, uh, you know, family jewels, and then take it up so that the stakes are so high that you must go through with it. Well, I mean, that's I've that's actually interestingly that Peter uh, interpreted my uh, my uh, advice that way because that's exactly what he did with the Museum of Food and Drink. Basically, <laughs> is he, he took an extremely uh, like a huge gamble and like quit a fine lawyering job uh, with you know kind of good benefits and salary to uh, start the Museum of Food and Drink with absolutely no guarantees, which I forever appreciate. So he did exactly he he actually did take my advice that way, and here's here's where he is today, right? True? Well, thanks so much. Really right. appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, before we go to break, why don't we uh, discuss why uh, Peter and uh, Emma are here? 
So, you, Emma, you want to talk? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think given all the discussions of sausages and turkeys and turduckins, this is actually a great segue to quickly plug our upcoming event this Thursday here in New York, MOFAD Roundtable, uh, The Future of Meat. Uh, we're bringing together four panelists uh, who represent a wide variety of views on meat eating and uh, whether we should eat meat, how we should produce meat in the future. We've got uh, Peter or, Singer. Or whether we should produce meat in the future. That too. Yeah. Uh, we've got Peter Singer, the eminent philosopher and author of Animal Liberation, among many other publications. Uh, another philosopher named Mark Budolfsson, who uh, is currently working on a volume on food ethics to be published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Isha Datar, who runs a nonprofit called New Harvest. They advocate for cultured meat and various uh, varieties of so-called in vitro meat and think about sort of the possibilities of meat futures. And then finally, uh, Heritage's own Patrick Martins, who Ooh. recently published The Carnivore's Manifesto and also runs Heritage Foods USA, which is a purveyor of ethically and sustainably raised meats. So, we'll And don't bring- forget there's some schmuck moderating the whole thing. Oh, yeah, this guy who's sitting right next to me, Dave, will be there as well. So if you are in New York or the area, we would love it if you could come. Uh, Tickets are at meet.mofad.org. And again, it's this Thursday, the 16th. Meet like get together or meet like the stuff? Meet like the... Good uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> what Jack said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, M-E-A-T dot yeah. mofad dot org. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Peter is going to do the introduction, so I can't go, Peter, Peter, Peter Singer, vegetarian philosopher, right? Because he's like, he's like, he's never probably been introduced that way in his life. You know what That's I'm saying? That's true, yeah. 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 I think he should do it. Yeah. No, it's your job, man. All right, sir. Yeah. But no, uh, Peter Singer, interesting, uh, yeah, he... Against eating meat on the grounds that if you don't believe in uh, racism, then you also shouldn't believe in eating meat. I mean, it boils down to like you can't distinguish between uh, animal suffering. In other words, suffering is the thing. You can't distinguish between uh, the suffering of um, animals and of people in terms of value judgments and then says, well, back in the day, we used to make differences between different groups of people and, and we don't do that anymore. So blah, blah, blah. My, my being relatively – it's kind of a utilitarian plus bludgeoning you with your own sensibilities kind of argument about uh, not eating uh, meat. It's accurate or in- inaccurate? I would, yeah, I would say, say so. Yeah. Interestingly, he doesn't argue that uh, the suffering that animals and humans experience is necessarily the same, but he does argue for equal consideration of suffering for living beings. Right. So it's not that the pain that a human might experience who knows that there's a future to be lived uh, upon the knowledge that he or she might be killed is the same as the pain that an animal might experience uh, because perhaps the level of sentience differs there, but there's still, he argues, a fundamental interest in life that all living things share. Yeah, sure. And it, yeah, definitely not in, a, in not equating the two, right? The animal suffering and the human suffering, but n- denying us as people the right to draw uh, lines of distinction and treatment on when we recognize suffering is occurring, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And then, but, you know, then he's interesting. He's like, you know, and they're like clearly probably not a food dude. Just saying this because like in a couple of the references in the book, he's like, especially for something as, you know, not important as eating the animal, you can kill it. You know what I mean? Like he almost seems in some places, it's been years since I've read it, but you know, some places like we're not talking like, you know, leather shoes. I can see even more than eating it. I don't know what the guy sounds like. He probably doesn't sound like probably that. Not, he's no. Australian for one thing. Oh, jeez, I can't do go. an Australian accent. Well, I just do it the same way I do New York. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it should be an interesting... With Patrick uh, on the panel, this will be great. Oh, my God. I wonder what Patrick's going to be like. Meat's so delicious. 
Like, so he's going to say the whole time. That's your Patrick impression? I, no, Peter does the Patrick impression. Peter, <laughs> no. do your Patrick. Peter, do your Patrick impression. Well, no, he's just saying, like, if you go over to the Shake Shack, you see the big line of people waiting for the hamburgers. You're not going to tell them to stop eating meat. It's just not possible. That, that's pretty good, that wasn't right? bad. Yeah, Peter's Peter's got that. Peter's got the. Uh... Let's take a break so we can squeeze in some more uh, questions. There, All right, yeah? we'll come right back with more cooking issues. or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website whiteoakpastures.com On a scale of 1 to 10, Dave, how how much do you love that commercial? 10. And I'd like to see Peter Singer come and tell that dude not to use his abattoir. You know what I'm saying? I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to see Peter Singer come and tell that guy not 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 to... do his oh, beef and poultry. Well, we're hoping some farmers will will come to the debate. So uh, that guy's voice, I would buy. Like I told you, the only thing I don't like about that is why only up to Princeton. What's what are we dirt? What are we dirt? <laughs> Anyways, all right, we have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yeah, Dave. Two or three weeks ago, you very briefly mentioned your recipe for doing kombu dashi in a circulator. Could you give me the actual recipe? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, I would look at the um, the key thing with kombu, there are a couple of key things with kombu. One is obviously the uh, the variety you get because they are very, like, extremely widely in terms of not just the amount of umami they deliver but the, the flavor they deliver. Second thing is, um, <clears throat> the second thing, I mean, obviously how it's, how it's cut up, I did studies on that as well, but uh, temperature and time. So um, you have a circulator? Yes. Okay. So the best, uh, I mean, the best results I got were in the bag, uh, circulated, um, although you could probably do it without the bag circulated. You've got to make sure that you don't get little pieces sucked up into the circulator. It was it was either sixty or seventy C. I'd have to go back and look at my uh, at my numbers, but it was sixty or seventy C. I think for like in the area of an hour. I did longer, I did shorter, I did higher, I did lower. But to go back on cooking issues and just search for uh, kombu. Those were the numbers I got. That uh, and like it wasn't like by a little bit. It was by uh, a lot. And we went through also all the different um, varieties that we could source here in New York. But my memory is too thin to give you the uh, the exact uh, the exact stuff on it. But it was uh, we have I have like two or three posts on on kombu dashi, all with um, numbers and photos, so you can kind of see how it looks. And then obviously. Afterwards, on I the Cooking Issues website, you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, on Cooking Issues, it's still up there. Like, I, like I say, we ha- we haven't like it's all archived, so it's you know it's not a living document anymore, but it's still there. And if it's not there, I can go research it. Just give us, give me a tweet back, and I'll go uh, figure out the, the the exact magic numbers again. 
All right, and then I think you just sort of hinted at my second question. But what's, uh, what's your favorite, favorite place to store its wildly expensive Asian ingredients and have some idea of getting what you're paying for? Uh, well, I mean, uh, for, for Japanese stuff, for food, I mean, I used to source – well, I was getting that stuff directly from kind of uh, True Worlds, who was my seafood supplier. So now, you know, I don't have any more like a super fantastic uh, Japanese – Source, I guess, you know, for foods, I, I tend to go to the same markets that we all kind of go to here in uh, New York. But um, I don't know, you mean online or in, in the city? I know that if you go out to, where do you go for stuff? Uh, Emma, Emma lived in Japan for how long? A couple of years. Yeah. Um, so I where mean, do you go? I've gone to Mitsua in New Jersey once or twice. And Good. I mean, selection is, is great there. It feels very much like a grocery store in Japan. Uh, but often I don't make it out there. So I usually just go to Sunrise Mart yeah. in the East Village. Yeah. But, the, you know, again, like what's weird about that, if you don't speak, like they don't necessarily think that you really care. And so they're not really going to like like worry about whether you get the best this or that. Like I've never purchased a, a good. Uh, uh, solid, you know, katsuobushi here, mm. ever. You know what I mean? Uh, you, can, I've gotten some decent mi- misos. I've gotten, I've never gotten a natto that I thought was worth spit here in uh, in in New York, as opposed to the one I had when I was over in Tokyo. You have any good web sources though? I no, I actually don't really buy Japanese food online. I can look into it. I'm sure. No, when you look into it and then but... tweet tweet, uh, what you should do is follow also at Mofad which is uh, our Twitter account for the museum. And Emma will tweet out for you a good source for that stuff. We'll maybe, or we'll find someone who knows and we'll tweet it out. But please follow at MoFad so that you can see Emma's uh, response, right? Yes, please do. Yeah. All right. So we'll look into it for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, okay. So, uh, Peter, uh, Emma, why don't you plug what you came to plug before we get ripped off the – oh, by the way, before you do – uh, we did a catch-up show last week on the Friday and it's now up, right, Jack? Oops, sorry, yes, it is. And we might have to do another catch-up we show. We might need another We one. might need another catch-up show, which is fine. You know what, though? I, I would prefer to do catch-up shows on the questions that are written in and like always always handle the live callers. I like having live callers. Yeah, um, I, w- I would prefer to do a catch-up show with a catch-up sponsor. That's just me. What, did you, do we have a catch-up sponsor? We, we don't yet. Nothing has come through. I know it's some people. Open I call. just know the yeah. person. <laughs> uh, you know, I just did a side-by-side of uh, Hunts versus Hines yesterday. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What, what was the takeaway? Uh, well, the, the Hunts, clearly the texture not as good as the Heinz. The flavor was yeah. okay. But have you had Sir Kensington's? I just met with one of the founders of that company. Have you, so have you? Uh, yes. How was it? Yeah, it's good. You know, I mean, I have to admit, I think, you know. Does I, he wear a monocle? <laughs> yes. Wait, guys, I just, I, I, I have to do this real quick. All right. You there, lad. What are we listening to? Heritage Radio Network, sir. Very good. I'm Sir Kensington, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. That's total monocle, man. That's total monocle right there. That's him. He was here. <clears throat> and yeah. did he wear a monocle? Of course. Sweet. Come. I kind of like, like it. Although it seems like... Did you know, Jack, because I know these two know it, that in Spanish, the word for Worcestershire sauce is English sauce? What? Yeah. Well, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Inglese. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what the hell is sauce inglese? They're like, oh... Worcestershire sauce. Well, and then Fran- the French sauce, sauce espagnole, is just called that because there's a tomato in it. Or there's some tomato in it. Like tomatoes come from Spain? For them, apparently, at the time, yeah. French. But, yeah. you know, the thing is uh, that, like, does Kensington's have, like, a, a, a dose of Worcestershire-like flavors or anchovy in it? Um, I, I can't remember. Because, you know, the, the characteristic note in Worcestershire sauce is anchovy. Yeah. yeah. 
Wish Your Stuff delicious. It is amazing stuff. You know what I do not like? Fake Wish – like why – like the – Worcestershireette or whatever they want to call the fake one that doesn't have the anchovy in it like has some of the notes of Worcestershire sauce but ain't real deal homey stuff you know what I'm saying doesn't like, it, isn't there like a tamarind a strong tamarind note in Worcestershire too I feel like I think so yeah look it's, it's just, a really interestingly complex condiment to be a mainstay in the American pantry right? but you know but, that's, but people <laughs> give us a bad rap you ever have the um the gentleman's relish, the pepper. It's basically uh, a compound butter of anchovies, black pepper, and butter. Mm. That's an English thing. People give the English a bad rap, but they look, they love their chutneys. I'm not talking prior to like this whole like kind of you know revitalization of British food over the past you know 15 20 years. I'm talking like old school, like even with all the crappy stuff, they still had the the, the chutneys, the the sauces, the relishes. I mean, you know, yeah, great sauces put on their crappy food. Wow. Well, that's what you're saying. That's, no, that's what you're saying. I'm, you're, I'm interpreting. No, see, this is, like, this is the same thing that caused you to quit your job. You, like, <laughs> you take like three steps beyond like what I'm actually saying. So why don't you talk – before they kick us off the air, which is yep. going to be very soon, very why don't soon. you tell us like what uh, – Yeah, so uh, for any listeners that are in the Midwest, uh, I'm a Midwesterner myself. We've, we're going to Madison, Wisconsin next week, and uh, we've got, we're doing a fundraiser for MoFad out in Madison uh, with two James Beard award-winning chefs – and the Underground Food Collective, and that's uh, October 23rd. Dave will be making cocktails, doing a demo. So if y'all are anywhere near Madison, Wisconsin, um, you should definitely get tickets. Uh, you can get them at mofadfundraiser.eventbrite.com. Uh, and you can also go on our Facebook. We put a post up on that, so at the MoFad Facebook page. All right, and speaking of uh, Wisconsin and brats, I'm going to do one quick one on the way out, and then we're going to have to catch the rest of the ones that I still owe you guys answers on in either a catch-up – probably will have to do a catch-up show. But this one goes out to the Hashi Food Truck uh, at Cooking Issues. Remember an issue where you covered brats or sausages in an immersion circulator with beer? Can you share the tips again? Yes. So uh, what you do is uh, you can do it in beer, but remember, if you're going to do it in beer, the f- first couple of ones you going to come out aren't going to taste as brotty as the rest would because you have to get the whole thing tasting like brats you know what i'm saying so you want like maximum brat and minimum beer at least at the beginning so you can get i've i don't know if you know this and uh at clef's wrote in also about new york hot dog carts i've drunk the hot dog water from a new york hot dog cart before and the sucker tastes more like a hot dog than a hot dog does and i'm pretty sure they reuse the water day in and day out and don't worry it's hot it's not bad it's kind of like you know the like the secret uh you know chinese stocks that are made for hundreds of years because the flavor is like you know, they keep on like reinforcing it with fresh meat. I think that's one of the keys. And so uh, you're not leaching any flavor out. So you have it in the circulator at like 140, right? So now you're not overcooking the, the stuff in the brats. You have it going there at 140. Pull it out and put it over a flaming hot grill to put the crust over it, and it's never going to be overcooked. Be delicious and beer brats and forever and awesome. It's really good. Yeah, I've had that. yeah, yeah. Right? We made it for you once at a museum event. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was some tasty stuff. Right. And uh, we also had a question in uh, that I know I owe you. Don't worry. I know I owe you. I got to talk about uh, fermentation in the bag. And maybe we'll talk about that more when we get more information on meat fermentation in the bag, which I've never done. And next time on Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.